Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for providing a place for us where we can meet in peace and out of the elements to fellowship together, to come as a people to worship you. We ask that you would find our worship acceptable to you and also that you would use your word and use our Sunday school teachers to enlighten our minds uh, just that much more about who you are and what you are doing in your creation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so kids can go to their Sunday schools. For the adult Sunday school, this is part four of four in a series of Sunday schools on how we disciple new believers. It was uh, based on and inspired by St. Augustine's book or long letter uh, called the, uh, in- the Catechizing of the Uninstructed, and uh, we've, we've been looking at what Augustine has to say, and then we've been trying to apply it. So, but quickly, at the beginning, I've been starting each because this is about teaching. This is, obviously, I'm teaching Sunday school, but this is about you as Christians uh, having opportunity to teach new believers, um, and maybe, maybe that's you know, in your future, that's, or maybe you've already done it, but maybe it's going to be um, just other people who've joined the church. Maybe it's just going to be your kids. Uh, but we all end up having somebody in our lives that we should be teaching uh, the faith to. And so I've been using this, this uh, prayer of Moses' in Deuteronomy 32.2 that says, May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the herb. Um, so I'm hoping that that would be uh, true of my teaching, and, and true of all of our teaching as we seek to instruct uh, those in the faith. Uh, then we've been using Matthew 28:18 through 20, which is the Great Commission. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so then our question is, how do we disciple new believers? And just to recap... We are learning from Augustine that teaching a new Christian should cover all of Scripture and church history, but not exhaustively or confusedly. Rather, in summary fashion, the history should be traced with more time devoted to critical moments and less to trivial minutiae. So that's the, the first piece. The second thing is that we need to understand our audience and use rhetoric because we want to be persuasive. So we're learning that from Augustine as well. And then the third is that we once... We are sure of our audience's sincerity because we've spent some time getting to understand our audience. We proceed with the summarizing of redemption history. And then Augustine wants us to remember as an addendum at the end that we need to put the new believer on their guard. That uh, when you become a, uh, a believer in, in Christ, it doesn't take away all of your problems in this world. There is a, a future that we have been, has been characterized for us in Scripture 
uh, and that future includes uh, the struggle of our Christian life, uh, heresies, sufferings, temptations, uh, and it also includes the second coming of Christ, the judgment, and the consummation. And so we need to to make sure that we have told the newcomer about this and, and also uh, outline a Christian ethic. So this has real impacts on how we're supposed to then go and live. As Paul will talk about in his epistles, you don't just get to get this free forgiveness from Jesus and then live whatever way you want. May it never be, right? Now in this new life that he's given you, you are empowered by the Spirit to bring forth new uh, behaviors and new desires and new activities. Um, so, so a Christian ethic. So last week we discussed the, a, a way or a couple of ways to summarize scripture. And this week we're going to rapidly attempt to summarize church history. Um, it, is, it is a difficult task to do in a short period of time. But we're remembering this is to give the contours to the newcomer uh, and more study, we should be spending the rest of our lives uh, delving into these things and getting to learn more about them. But to start with, for church history, I've broken it up into 500-year chunks, and this is probably going to give some people a lot of pain as I skip over many things. But Calvin teaches us that the church uh, carries out its mission, the co-mission of Christ, in evangelizing the world. It carries it out when... It is uh, when the word is preached faithfully and heard conscientiously by the people. Uh, When the sacraments and discipline are administered properly. That is when the church is doing its work. And I wanted to start with that because um, I'm going to skip over most of that to talk about some other things that the church has, important things the church has done through history uh, but we have to remember that the, the point of what it's doing is to preach the gospel, to hear the gospel preached, uh, and to administer uh, the, the church's discipline rightly uh, as we bring our worship to God. So, I'm going to summarize church history by asserting that the church in undertaking uh, this commission, this great commission, it has two great tasks that further its mission of evangelizing the world with word and sacrament. And the two tasks are discovering the word of God and discovering doctrine. Since the ascension of Jesus to today, we've had about 2,000 years go by. So when Augustine told us to summarize this, it was like 400 AD. So he only had 400 years. We've got 2,000. So that's in my defense. Within the first 80 or so, uh, years of Christ's ascension, the New Testament books were were written, were completed. And over the next 300 years, the gospel spread like wildfire, and the nascent church became an entity, a recognizable entity that couldn't be ignored in the culture around it. It was a time that was marked by conversions because people were coming to Christ for the first time, right? Uh, there weren't that was much more normal than the church would experience later when there was more organic growth because families were having children that were born into the church, into the faith. Uh, not that they are presumptively saved in that way, but they, from the moment they're born, only know the, the Christian way of life, the Christian way of thinking. So it was, it was marked by conversions. It was uh, marked by fervent faith, 
uh, as people left everything to follow the new way. It was a time when they had to leave public life and society to, to be associated with Christianity. Emphasis was on the salvation that's found in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the commencement of the final age. Right in front of them, they had all of this, you know, the final age is here. It's done. The work is done. And you have these prophecies about the end times. And you're in the end times right now. And uh, there was an expectation that it was going to be right, right soon. Uh, and we are all to live as though Christ could come back next, in, our, in the next moment, in the next day. Um, but the church will see, has to learn that he also might not come back tomorrow. And what do we do? What, what do we do then? Um, so, and it was a time of martyrdom. The church was being attacked from without. It was a time of heresies. The church was being attacked from within. And uh, it was a time where the church was trying to figure out where does Jesus' authority rest uh, in, the, in the world? And so, but, one, but what I've said about these two tasks, tasks are that they are tasks of discovery. And I want to talk about that for just a second. Does anybody here like archaeology? Uh, yeah, I got, I got some head nods. It's a little head. I find it really exciting. Maybe, maybe that's just a nerdy thing. But I was looking it up uh, in 2022. There's always new discoveries. And in 2022 alone, there's a whole bunch of really interesting things that happened. But a couple that caught my attention. In Spain, they discovered a 2,100-year-old text scratched onto uh, this, this thing that they thought was just an ornament. Uh, and it disproved their current theories about the literacy of the tribe that lived there in Spain at that time. They thought, oh, these are ignorant people, they can't write, they can't read, until they find the, the writing, right? And it's like, oh, I guess they weren't as dumb as I thought. Uh, and then in, ancient, or in Mexico, they just discovered an ancient Maya city. Uh, in the jungles, there's 300 buildings, right? Many stories uh, of lost cities, right, in India or here, in this case, in, in Mexico. Fun stuff, right? I, I really like hearing about this kind of things. One of the things uh, I really like is uh, the King Arthur legends. You know, is he real? Is he not real? You know? uh, is he a representative of multiple people? I, I don't know, right? But when you hear these stories and these myths, they tell you, well, this guy was born in this place, right? And so, well, you, you look over there, and well, if he was born, there must be something there. So you go over and you start digging... And sure enough, you find a castle, right? And that doesn't prove that King Arthur was the man we've heard about or one man or whatnot. But the story told us that there was, that there was probably a castle there. And you go and look, and there's a castle. And, and so you start digging, and you start uh, discovering some more things about this castle. Proverbs 25, 2 says that it's the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the glory of kings to search things out. And when you're excavating something like a castle, uh, you're, you're uncovering something that has been covered by the sands of time. Uh, you're discovering something. That's what the word discovery means. You're uncovering something. It's already there. It is what it is. But you're uncovering it. You dig and you find, here's the main hall. It's like in a central location. Maybe you keep digging below that and you start to find dungeons. You find a, a large kitchen off to the side. You move, you know, your dig site. You find the bases of some what look like towers that belong to the castle, right? You move around. You're not sure where you're going to find stuff, but you're not going to find stuff where there isn't, and you're not making it up. You're going to find stuff where there is. 
So you start to find the outlines of the walls, and you're uncovering what's already there. The scriptures are this way. The canon of scripture is this way. Uh, It's the word of God. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. It was written by chosen men. Uh, The church discovers them. It doesn't create it. It doesn't invent it. It doesn't get to change it. uh, And it doesn't get to make it up. It discovers the word of God. Before I delve a little bit more into uh, the New Testament uh, canon and how it was discovered by the church, um, I just want to say a couple of quick words on my helpful chart here about authority and sanctification, because the authority of Christ and the sanctification of his people run backwards and forwards uh, in time to kind of uh, highlight what is going on in in the church. They're critical questions about our doctrine, what we believe, and how we live. And so, uh, as far as Christ's authority uh, goes, we have to remember that the Great Commission actually can't get far away from the authority of Christ because it's Jesus who, who introduces the Great Commission by saying, um, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That's how he starts the Great Commission. So at its best moments, the church has recognized that Christ's authority rests in the word of God. In the world and in the church, his authority has been deposited in the word of God. Okay? And it, it works its way out from there as we submit to it. At its worst moments, the church has placed the authority of God in fallen men. And that is something that makes the church bounce around a bit through the ages. Sanctification is, is similar. We can see times when uh, the church is exhibiting all kinds of symptoms of sickness Symptoms that are played out in a lack of sanctification. In their priests, in their people, and in a lack of the fruit of the Spirit. Which are going to include not only sanctification, not only good works, living rightly, but also joy. Right? There was, at times, when we get our doctrine pretty messed up, there's a lack of joy amongst the people. The priests are living in ridiculous ways. The people are not enjoying anything about what salvation uh, has to offer because it's been obscured. Okay, so those two things are going to run through all of this, but I'm, but I'm only touching lightly on them as, as we continue. So the canon of the, old, uh, of the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament. The canon of the Old Testament is actually a lot more straightforward uh, because while it was first, you know, probably had to go through a process, definitely had to go through a process like the uh, New Testament of being discovered by the Jewish faithful, by the time we get to the New Testament, we find that it is completed and that Jesus and the apostles just accept it, which makes it very easy for us to know what the Old Testament is. They accept it and they pass it to us and they use it uh, in citations, in references, um, to, to make their case uh, for um, the proofs and explanation of Jesus' claims, right? They uh, quote it extensively. And so our understanding of what the Old Testament is is a lot more straightforward than what the church had to do uh, for the New Testament. The New Testament was written, obviously, following the ascension of Christ, probably uh, so, so that um, the ultimate test 
of the canonicity is the inspiration of the Spirit, but there are guideposts that the church looked to to point them to where should I be looking for, for these things. And those guideposts were authorship of the apostles or people closely associated with them and use of those texts in the churches all over the world where it existed and throughout the time between Christ's ascension and the period of time when the church is looking at these questions. Um, so the books of the New Testament, real quickly, most of them are written by apostles, right? So you have Matthew and John are the two gospels that are written directly by apostles. Then you have all the epistles of Paul written by an apostle. Hebrews possibly written by Paul. Uh, and then Revelation and the epistles of Peter and John with Revelation being also written by John. But then you have a couple of exceptions. You've got uh, Mark and Luke, but Luke is believed to have been written by a physician who accompanied Paul in his ministry and written under the supervision supervision of uh, Paul the Apostle and uh, acts similarly. For Mark, that is believed to have been written under the supervision of the Apostle Peter. So then you only have James and Jude left if we accept Paul as the author of Hebrews. And James and Jude are both believed to have been the brothers of Christ and also closely associated with the apostles after Christ's ascension. And so that, that's where uh, they started looking uh, for, for the scriptures. But the books uh, that were written probably start. Jesus was probably, uh, probably ascended around 35 A.D., and uh, the writings of the books, the apostles went out and they started preaching the gospel, uh, but they didn't start to write it down and commit it to writing for a number of years. It was probably around 50 A.D., obviously we don't know exactly the date, but by 110 A.D. as a late date um, is when they believed that the canon of Scripture was completed. So from 50 to 110, this is during the lifetime of the apostles, uh, the books, the letters, they're sent to the churches, then they start to be uh, circulated among them. We see this from internal evidence in the scriptures. Um, they're obviously sent as letters. You see references about them circulating eventually. And then you see later books start to reference the other books, quoting uh, earlier books in the New Testament canon. So it's between 110 and 175 A.D. The books are, are done being written. And you don't have anybody actually write down a list of what they are. But, but that doesn't mean that those people didn't know what it was. Uh, Polycarp is alive at this period in time. He was, an, he was a disciple of the Apostle John. And uh, he, um, you know, people like him and Ignatius were around who knew the Apostles. And they uh, would have had insight into what was considered Scripture. And they make some references and comments to those things, but it isn't until 170 AD, 175 AD, that uh, Irenaeus actually writes the list down. Irenaeus was himself a disciple of Polycarp, who was the disciple of, of John, uh, the apostle. And he found it necessary to write down the list because uh, there were those caught up in the Gnostic heresy that had started to write very ridiculous books asserting totally different truth claims than those that are found in the word of God. And Irenaeus is simply reminding the church of what Paul said in Galatians 1, 6 through 9, but picking up um, 
well, yeah, in 6 through 9. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So even though... Uh, Irenaeus lists uh, his list. His list, excuse me, does not include all of the books that we have uh, in the New Testament. Uh, all of the books we have in the New Testament were on his list. Um, the church eventually recognizes uh, the rest of those, and what we what we see in that um, is, for one thing, the earliest extent writings we have of the Christian fathers indicate the acceptance of the books that we use now without rejecting some of the books that we use that they didn't mention or else their mention of it has been lost. Uh, So we see the church uh, begin this process of discovering and it's in light of the things that they know and and, and understand clearly to be the word of God that they're able to judge and discern what other books fit into that category or do not. And so the truth of God's word is shedding light on what else might be God's word, or what isn't. And the church is following a sure and certain path to a sure and certain conclusion about which books are in and which books are out. By the time we get to around 400 AD, I'm rounding on purpose, the church spoke officially and with uh, one voice that the discovery was complete. They have completely excavated the castle. There's nothing more. It's it is what it is. They didn't make it up, but they've, they've finished excavating. And over that period, it's important to remember that the church is exhibiting, for one thing, its feminine characteristic, its feminine nature, and its submission and responsiveness. The word of God was received by the church in all humility and submission to Christ's lordship. And the church responded by affirming, by confessing it to be the word of God. And it wasn't hastily done. It wasn't thoughtlessly done. It was done under the stimulus of heresy, false claims that had to be responded to. And it was done under persecution where Christians had to ask themselves, am I willing to die for believing what Paul says in this epistle or in that epistle? Am I willing to die for this little letter that Jude wrote? Am I willing to die for what Mark says about Jesus. That is the decision that they're having to make. And they are saying, yes. Okay. Likewise, they have to ask themselves, am I willing to die for believing what the shepherd of Hermes has to say about shoulder angels? Am I willing to die for believing what the Didache has to say about baptizing with three infusions and using warm water? And the answer is no, I'm not. I'm not willing to die about these things. You all know what I mean when I say shoulder angels, right? I wasn't sure if you would. Okay, so I looked them up online to make sure I wasn't crazy, and it is a Western animation television trope. So I'm on solid ground here. I saw pictures of Bart Simpson. He had a little Bart Simpson angel and a little Bart Simpson devil on his shoulder. That's what I'm talking about, shoulder angels. Okay, Shepherd of Hermes talks about a concept like that. Um, Our faith extends to our recognition and acceptance of Scripture. So, so we rest in the fact that the Holy Spirit inspired Scripture. The Holy Spirit has protected um, 
the scriptures through history, kept it from destruction, kept it from loss, ensured that his people have it. Uh, And not that it hasn't been threatened at times, but our faith rests in the fact that God gave us this word and he's preserving that word uh, and, and he's delivered it to us. So even though there's been confusion about where Christ's authority rests uh, throughout church history, even to this day, uh, the church's universal recognition of a closed canon is an implicit, albeit sometimes unconscious, recognition that Christ's authority rests finally in his word. Uh, we go on and on about scripture, and uh, but there, there's other topics I need to uh, to cover, and obviously... We still have a lot of church history to, but we're getting we're gaining momentum. We're going to gain some speed here. So the the second great work of the church. So the first great work was discovering discovering scripture. The second great work is discovering doctrine. It's in, to further the evangelizing of the world. Like scripture, Christian doctrine is what it is. The church doesn't invent it. It doesn't create it. It does not pick and choose it. The church discovers right doctrine. The development of doctrine uh, should not be an innovative process. Um, it's doc- doctrine is always a response to bad doctrine. Good doctrine is always a response to bad doctrine. The scriptures remind us over and over again that we're to stick to the simplicity of Christ. We're not to have anything to do with foolish controversies that lead to quarrels. We're not to argue endlessly over definitions and terms. Uh, we're not to be drawn into doubtful disputes and we're uh, not to pry into things that are too high for us. So we're not just making up doctrine for fun. It's not a proactive thing. But 1 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, Paul says, We are not waging war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but of divine power to destroy strongholds. The stronghold is there. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. The lofty opinion has been raised against the knowledge of God. And take every thought captive to obey Christ. So we respond to these things and develop doctrine in response to tear these things down. A part of our Christian or spiritual warfare is fought by developing doctrine. But we learn from scripture that it is a defensive, warlike ethic. In the words, uh, I want to quote Henry V. I referred to him a couple weeks ago in uh, in one of the Sunday schools. Uh, We would not seek a battle as we are, nor as we are, we say, we would not shun it. We have a defensive, warlike ethic. In the early years of the church, two very important doctrines were carefully excavated, so now we're jumping into this uh, first 500 years. The two main doctrines that come out of the first 500 years are the doctrine of God and the doctrine of Christ. By the doctrine of God, I mean the doctrine of the Trinity that there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. There were multiple heresies over multiple centuries that bounced around on this, and this is what the church uh, came to understand from the scriptures. And then by the doctrine of Christ, I mean of Christ's nature, that Christ, uh, Christ being the eternal Son of God, became man and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. Again, multiple 
uh, heresies over multiple centuries to work that out. But those were the two um, main doctrinal discoveries of the first 500 years. So now I'm going to pass over everything else in that first 500 years and uh, go to the next 500 years. Uh, Between 500 and 1,000, there are several important developments. One is a seeming change in the outlook, as I mentioned before, on the part of the church in the first 500 years. Um, Being a Christian often meant that you're stepping out of public life, you're stepping out of social life, uh, and you're stepping out of favor with the world. And uh, there was an expectation that Jesus was going to return soon. And again, I don't want to dampen that expectation. We should be living and expecting Christ to return any day. Uh, but the church has to start uh, to grapple with the question of, okay, but what if he doesn't? What do I do next? Uh, so it's been, uh, it's been said that the con- first conclusion we reach as we read Scripture for the first time isn't always the right one. Uh, subsequent readings, prayer, meditation, uh, experience, uh, study, will often lead us to a better understanding of what it is we're reading. And that's true for the individual and for the church. Uh, in the first five, uh, well, I already said about the first 500 years, kind of what their focus was. In the second 500 years, the church began to deal with what it means to be in the world. In a way, the world became more accepting of Christians and their involvement in public life and society uh, and a lot of doctrine started to be developed that was dealing with how do I live my Christian walk in public, in service, maybe to the government, right, in, uh, in the military, in, uh, in society, uh, as I you know, still have my important position in society. And a lot of work was done really, not just in that 500 years, but in the next 1,000 years, um, Great work was done by the church in addressing many doctrinal questions about how we live in this world. Uh, but another thing to think about is, you know, as we wonder why the church was silent on, on some things or didn't say as much earlier, uh, in the context of everybody hearing about Jesus for the first time, you're not asking questions like, do I baptize my baby as much as do I baptize uh, a convert? Uh, later on, you might, you might start to start scratching your head and go, wait, what were we supposed to do there? The earlier fathers really didn't say much about it. Um, that's just an example of reasons we should be thinking about why the church said more or less on different things. The Apostles' Creed was a product of this time period uh, between five and uh, 500 and 1,000. Uh, it had seeds, and much of what I say is a product in this time had seeds even earlier uh, but it, it grew, uh, the church grew as an institution, uh, and it began consolidating power and organizing itself in a very formal way. And the seeds of this were planted uh, earlier, like, like I said. Its missionary outreach continued, uh, and the inv- but the invention of Islam ended up asserting pressure on where the borders of, of Christianity were going to be drawn for the time period. And largely, uh, with exceptions, of course, uh, Christianity... Uh, was contained within Europe, uh, north and near western portions of Asia and North Africa for the time being. But right around 1000, the church suffered its first uh, great schism. It was a disagreement um, 
likely fueled by jealousy of who was going to be in power in the East and the West. Uh, but the, the formal cause was the disagreement about whether the Holy Spirit proceeded from the Father and the Son or just from the Father. Between 1000 and 1500, the church as an institution went from an orientation in the world to nearly an, or, an orientation of being of the world. Uh, the Christians traveled outside the Latin-speaking world, but the translation of the scriptures did not keep up, and the ability to publish did not keep up with the new people groups and languages that they had. And so um, that, that began to be a part of the process of obscuring the scriptures, although scripture translation has always driven the development of alphabets and literacy around the world. The bishops uh, ended up having too much power and wealth reposed in them, and their focus shifted from studying how to live well in the world uh, to how to take advantage of everything the world had to offer. And two evils really came uh, out of this. One was the loss of the word of God as it was in Latin and failed to be translated uh, into newer languages that were taken over. And the second was uh, the interposition of the priests and the sacraments and the church as an organization between the individual and the salvation of Christ. Those were the two big takeaways. But I want to just mention that the church was not wholly bad. There have always been a remnant. There has always been a remnant. There have always been reformers. And it is always, there's always been stewards of the truth uh, in, in the church. So starting around 1500, and I know I'm just over time, but I'm almost done. And there's not enough here to, to do the next uh, to do a next Sunday school, so we'll finish. We'll push through real quick. Starting right around the 1500, the Protestant Reformation began, and in this last 500 years, uh, we see the rediscovery in the Reformation of the Scriptures and the conviction that Christ's authority rests in the Scriptures. And the key doctrines that came out of this rediscovery was the doctrine of salvation, the key doctrine. The Reformation could be summarized by listing its five solos or its five alones. We will state them uh, simply by saying, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, as we learn in Scripture alone. But there's another key outcome uh, of the Reformation was a purification of the church as it led to the removal of many virulent weeds that grew up in the church's garden of doctrines. But there's another difficult outcome that's harder to characterize somewhat, and that is the uh, fracturing of the church into many denominations. There are good and bad reasons for that, and uh, I don't think we should be totally against that happening. But there is one thing that clearly came from it that is good, and it is a a palpable uh, fulfillment of the fact that God's kingdom is going to spread over all tribes and tongues and nations. Emphasis on the tongues, Right? The scriptures aren't lost in Latin anymore. They have been translated to many, many languages, and that translation work uh, needs to continue. Also, during this period of time, the borders of Christianity were expounded, expanded, excuse me, um, and Christian uh, faith has made a lot of uh, progress in the Far East, North and South America, Sub-Saharan Africa, Australia, and the many islands of the world. Uh, and And remember, we're summarizing church history for the new believer. Uh, For the new convert, we need to remind them that today, we must first and foremost commit ourselves to being people of the word of God. To be reading the word with the church, because no scriptures have been private interpretation. Praying without ceasing. Not neglecting to gather together, 
to worship in spirit and truth and building one another up in songs and hymns and spiritual songs, giving thanks always and rejoicing in all things as we receive the sacraments in remembrance of what Christ has done for us. This is a summary. It's a very short summary. Um, Much more discipleship is needed for our new convert. Uh, So on a final note, I want to say that uh, I have one other suggestion of a entirely different nature for how you could summarize church history, and happily it's even simpler to communicate, and that is confessions and creeds. Each confession or creed was developed uh, in an enormous undertaking uh, that came as a direct result of very momentous historical events, and those confessions are a little poignant summary of redemptive history. Uh, If Augustine thinks that new converts need to know about church history, uh, then us as not new converts need to know about church history. So I encourage you to study it. Um, If you've got questions about how to do that, I have suggestions, but I'm out of time. So ask me, ask Pastor Proctor, Pastor Holloway, ask the other elders uh, for suggestions on how we can study church history. And with that, we'll close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the work that you are doing in the world through your word and spirit, through your church. We ask that we would faithfully play our part as your people in our lives, in our time, in this place that you have set us. In Jesus' name, amen.